Welcome to the Emmaus Fellowship Teaching Podcast. We trust you find this encouraging. Emmaus Fellowship is located at 205 North Pine Street in Woodland Park, Colorado. Our phone number is 719-687-6061. We trust you find this encouraging as you pour over God's Word with us. Gave me a voice and a song Taught me how to sing I have tried to um, cobble together a message through transition and emotion, so bear with me. It's not going to be pretty. I hope some things get through that are good. Um, so it's funny. It was either 20 or 21 years ago I uh, took the Sunday pulpit for the first time. And it was interesting. We were at a, a church that had grown quickly. There were a thousand people. And again, it was Father's Day. Um, and when you have six kids, people think you're, you know something about being a father. Um, and anyone who's a father knows that that's, uh, that's a really big assumption. That uh, fathering is a great way to feel really insecure about yourself and realize how lacking you are. And there's a purpose for that, and I'll get to that. But um, I have to tell you, I spent 70 hours on that message. It was the first time, again, 1,000 people, Sunday morning. I was freaking out. And it was awesome. It was super fun. I, about three minutes into it, I thought, I love this. I love speaking. Apparently, that's been uh, lost in translation. We had a conversation. I love speaking. I actually do. And... Uh, whether I'm good at it or not is not important to me. Uh, I just love it. I love uh, when I was a little kid, this is like Abby, I always wondered where the microphone to the world was. I honestly did. I was like, I want to find that. I want to tell everybody something, right? Whatever. Um, super fun. Anyway, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a story, not a parable, but a story about Jesus and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work that out a little bit, and um, I'm going to go into some of the dark parts of my story, not as a victim or as a complaint, but to um, kind of talk about the fathering of God and the idea that God fathers us. I'm, I'm fathered well in retrospect. I'm fathered well. And um, I might not have said that, when I was a new believer, I might have felt I was a victim, and I'll explain all that, but I can tell you without doubt that I am fathered well. It's amazing to me how kind and good and generous the Father is. So let me read this. Uh, let me pray real quick. Father, uh, you're so good and kind, and I just want everything that you have, as I've been praying, uh, to be said and to be heard uh, to be just that. Lord, open our hearts. Um, open all our hearts to what you have this morning. You are generous and kind. And just speak to us, Lord. We, are, we come to you as your children. And I just ask that you would speak clearly on this your day, Father's Day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can anybody help me out with some water? I'm kind of dry up here. 
Thanks and amen. All right. So, thanks, brother. Thanks, buddy. Um, you ever spe- see speakers that use these as props? Pick them up, they move them around, they never take a sip. I've seen that before. It's really funny. Anyway, um, I'd appreciate it. Just close your eyes and listen to this story. It's really beautiful. And it's our story. Uh, so this is John chapter 4. Jesus uh, knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. Wouldn't that be cool? Come upon Jesus, thirsty. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused Uh, to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, If you knew the generosity of God and who is speaking to you, you would ask, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? Who can you offer? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ.
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus said to her, I am the Messiah. Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, the woman, Now we believe not because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Man, there's so much there. And that is our story, right? And I want to hit on a couple things. First, um, years ago, um, I was at Steph's parents, and they had a stack of Bibles, and I grabbed one. And I was reading this uh, portion of Scripture, and I came across that thing that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you knew the generosity of God. And it was as if somebody like poked me or, or like put a spear in me. And I asked the question, like, do I know the generosity of God? Do I, am I living in a way where I know the generosity of God? And it really like, and then my, my next thought was, I want my children to know the generosity of God. And I began to pray that, that had to be 20-something years ago, and I began to pray that regularly for my kids, that they would know the generosity of God. Because I didn't grow up knowing the generosity of God. And as a young believer, I didn't, I had, I had a lot of fight in me. A lot of my prayers were spiritual warfare. A lot of my prayers were spending a lot of time trying to keep the enemy at bay and using every bit of strength I had. And it wasn't working very well. And so this idea that I would know God's generosity, that I, and, and to me, and I want to I wanna, um, give you a second to think about this. When I say those words, generosity of God, where does that take you? Take a second, maybe close your eyes. Think of generosity of God. I remember when Jack um, Taylor was here, he talked about, uh, man, every light's green. I got a loaf of bread under each arm. 
and I'm making nothing but left turns. It was like everything's great. <laughs> I love that picture. Like everything's going to be fine. Everything's smooth. The path is open, wide open and smooth. And he was laughing because that's obviously not our story, right? So to believe that God's generous is to believe that there's more to the story. Like Mark said, that the story is bigger. And so, um, like the Samaritan woman, Jesus came to my little village uh, 37 years ago. Um, he ended up saving my best friend, Chris Fiorelli, and my only enemy, Dan Connolly, uh, separately. He somehow captured these two guys. And my best friend, I was living in Austin, and I came back, and my best friend who had been... Um, had sold everything he had just to buy drugs the last time I'd seen him. He was a, he was a train wreck. And I moved to Austin, Austin, Texas. And when I came back, he was on fire for Jesus. And all the uh, posters that he had of rock bands and all the marijuana paraphernalia was gone. And it was, the scriptures were all over his bedroom. And he was telling me I was going to hell. And it was awesome. He's like, I love you too. Um, he's like, no, really, you're going to hell. And it's like, uh, you're the guy that did all the really bad stuff. I only did some bad stuff, you know. So I was wrangling. I was like that Samaritan woman, you know. You Jews say that you have to worship in this way, and we worship. I had my arguments, right? I wanted. I thought it was fascinating. Like Jesus just told her, her past. You're a prophet, by the way. Who, where are we supposed to worship? By the way, what's you know? She had questions to ask the first prophet she would meet, right? She was thinking about this stuff. And that was me, man. I was pushing back for a few months. And my friend Chris was just, he was so uh, gracious, but he was also a truth teller. He told the truth in love. He told me I was in trouble. He told me I didn't know Jesus. And uh, I thank him for that. And my, my only enemy, who uh, is one of my cl closest friends now too, Dan Connolly, he was just a punk, and and uh, I had had a girlfriend at the time, and he had like called her and hit on her and asked her out, and he knew it was my girlfriend, and so I literally jumped him in an alley one night, and I put his head into a brick wall, and that was my meeting of Dan Connolly, and um, hard to believe, I know, soft and fuzzy Chris Haggerty, I was an angry young guy right it was my my dark times and later again when I came back from Austin I ran into him and it was like I can't stand you and he's like yeah I know I love Jesus now you need to know Jesus you're going to hell I'm like I gotta get you guys together right and I did and that was not a good idea because it was like they were just on fire they just loved Jesus and they're both musicians and they're and I was in a band in New York and and we were um and it was just amazing to see their instant brotherhood. Like they're praying together and worshiping together. And like I'm just there watching this for a few months. And finally I asked Jesus into my heart. Um, and I would say that uh, part of my story, so I was 22 when I met Jesus. And part of my story was that uh, when I was about four, I remember running from my house to my friend's house. And suddenly I was stopped in this sunshine, in this incredible pool of sunshine. 
And I knew it was the Father. I knew it was Father God. Like he locked me. And I was dancing, literally, in this pool of sunshine at four years old. Like I just, like, the heavens opened. And I was just like, this is God. This is incredible. And it lasted, I don't know how long, but then I took off and hung out with my friends. And it was this moment where the Lord just said, I'm yours. I'm your father. At seven, I remember, we used to say the Our Father, as the Catholics call it, the Our Father, as you've heard me say. And, and every night before I go to sleep, I say the Our Father and the Hail Mary. And I remember thinking at seven, it occurred to me, I am praying every night. I'm talking to the Father. Does he talk back? You know, this, like, so I asked him a question, and he answered me and uh, settled that. God, God speaks, right? And I don't remember what I asked him. Uh, but I, I remember that he answered me clearly, and it was like, cool, God speaks. So that's seven. Um, the year prior, six, my, was the last time I saw my parents talk to each other. So they lost their relationship, though out of Catholic obligation, they stayed together. And so our home became this strange um, uh, navigating of a very broken marriage, uh, a divorce in the wings waiting to happen, right? which happened when I was 21. And I'm the youngest of six, so they, I guess they waited till I was 21, you know, and then, then they could leave each other, right? And, um, and these are part of the dark times. Uh, like the Samaritan woman, I had this story that was developing in our home and that I, I looked at as um, hardship. And if I hadn't met Jesus, I would probably be presenting as a victim right now. I'm not a victim. I am not a victim. I want you to hear that. You are not victims. We are not victims. The dark times that God brings us through are redeemed through our lives. And so at 15 years old, my favorite person in the world, in the whole world, was my oldest brother, John. He's 10 years older than me. And he left. My father kicked him out when I was eight and because uh, he was a troublemaker. He was sneaking out and getting stoned, and he grew his hair down the middle of his back, and he was um, pushing back on authority. It was the days of the hippies, and he was embracing that culture deeply. And Super smart kid, great athlete, charming, um, wonderful, and a great student, though he didn't try. And I love John. Um, he, I guess because of marijuana, he started to be really nice to me. And... Um, and so he was just my favorite. And my father kicked him out. And I cried every night. I wailed every night for probably four months. I wailed thinking about my brother. I just, it broke me, my heart. <clears throat> so fast forward to when I'm 15, he's 25, and he comes home, and he's now schizophrenic because he's been smoking marijuana. And he, he mixed a very complex chemical substance with a complex developing environment called his brain and it ruined him and so my parents not talking to each other my my siblings are off to college it fell on me to be his caregiver and so over the next six years I was his primary caregiver cycles of violence delusion uh, sleepless nights 
These are the days of stigma. You never would talk about mental illness in your home. Uh, so I, I saw these as incredibly dark times. I was living in my car sometimes when I got into senior in high school and living in my friend's basement. It was a violent home. Um, I was failing in school. And I want to tell you a story about my school. So senior year, um, my kids, I don't know if you've heard this story. <laughs> so senior year, I get to the assembly for the first day of school. I am the worst student in my class. I'm not stupid, but I'm bad. I, I am not engaged because of the, what I'm dealing with at home, right? And they give an assembly and they say, we're going to start a new program where the if you're late, or you're, you're tardy, or sorry, if you're absent seven times, you're expelled. If you're tardy 15 or 14 times, you're expelled. So I raised my hand in the assembly. I said, when does this start? And they said, 90 days from today. So 90 days from that day, I showed up to school. First time. And I walked into the homeroom. I said, hey, I'm Chris Haggerty. I think I'm supposed to be here. The guy looks and goes, yeah, you're here. Check. I didn't get in trouble for that, but I failed senior year, so I had to go to summer school. But I broke into the office, and I stole a letterhead, and I typed, Chris Haggerty is excused, and has satisfied the, the, um, the, the need, whatever, to uh, the requirements for science and math. And I got out of summer school, and I graduated. Because I'm sorry, but that's what I did. Um, and here I am today. Wasting your time. No. Um, so here I was in this, this place where the world didn't make sense to me. Institutions of the world made littler sense. And uh, my father and I lost our relationship when I was 17. I, was, I mean, this is just a, a train wreck, right? I, was, uh, I went through a time of feeling suicidal when I was 18. I remember walking through the, uh, the mall putting my shoulder into everybody I could, waiting for somebody to fight me just so I could feel alive. Nobody did. I guess they saw that I was angry. Um, and so I had, uh, like the Samaritan woman, I had very little, um, very little going for me as far as family support. Um, when I listen to Mark's story saying my father served the Lord his whole life, I think, how cool would that have been? And I'm sure it wasn't perfect. No doubt it's perfect. Uh, but, wow, what was that like? You know. So at 22, again, here's my, my best friend and my worst enemy telling me about this guy, Jesus, who I thought I kind of knew. And as a Catholic kid, I thought, when I die, however I die, the scales of heaven will look at my hard times versus my bad behavior. And they'll have mercy on me. That was my thought, right? I didn't know. And so when my, my best friend told me I was going to hell, I pushed back a bit. But then I realized he was inviting me to life, not to uh, fear, the fear of, of hell, but to the river of life, the stream of life, right? And so um, I was that Samaritan woman. I ran out on the streets. I mean, everybody I could get to listen to me, I told them, you got to meet this guy, Jesus. You have to meet him. He is the source of life, and he is love. And I am white as snow because Jesus saved my sorry butt against all odds. 
I, I knew people that were more bad than me, but I did not. I, I felt filthy when I came to God. I felt filthy, and I felt washed white as snow. And then we used to go to New York City all the time, and, um, you know, this idea that Jesus says, time is coming is, is now where you don't have to worship in Jerusalem, and you won't worship on this mountain. Wherever you worship the Lord in, in spirit and truth, that's what he's looking for. So Washington Square to me is holy ground. I had my some of my deepest spiritual experiences in New York City, Washington Square, attacked by drug dealers and just Jesus all over it, man. And I uh, ended up leading uh, a lot of people to the Lord. Like I was so exuberant, so on fire. And it was just like the Lord was just kept, yeah, I'm going to throw that guy at Haggerty because he's ready. And I go to the mall and my buddy and I would lead, you know, a dozen people to the Lord, you know, and like absurd. I remember there was this Jersey's kind of a, a veiled violence state, right? You're ready to like fight at any time. I don't know how much time you spent there, but if you haven't been rolled in an alley, then you haven't been to Jersey. Um, but I mean, we're in uh, we're in this uh, mall, standing in line. I was buying a pair of jeans. And this large guy behind me, African-American guy, is with his girlfriend. He's trying to intimidate us. He's going, man, I just feel like kicking somebody's butt right now. He wasn't using that word. but I just, man, He's like right behind us, right? And so I literally turn around 180. I look at him. He's got these red uh, Converse on. No, pink. Pink Converse high tops. And, and I just said, man, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And he's like, like, you're actually talking to me. I'm like... If you died today, would you go to heaven? He said, I don't know. I'm like, well, you can know. And we talked to him about the Lord, and he's like, yeah, I want to accept Jesus. And he goes, I said, can we pray for you? And he's like, right here in front of all these people. I go, man, you're bold enough to step out of the house with those pink chuckies on. <laughs> he just starts laughing, and he prayed with us. And it was that kind of like, we weren't just like stoic. We were having a blast, right? It was the funnest thing in the world. Telling people about Jesus. And again, anybody that would stand still. I had friends that wouldn't come near me anymore because I scared them, you know. So I asked, cool, whatever. And I had friends that were like, I'm going to love you no matter what. Um, so I want to talk about this idea that the Father, our Father, will wean us off of our fathers because he's the only true Father, right? So... I'm a flawed father. My my kids, I won't ask them to testify, but I make a lot of mistakes, and I want to be perfect. I want to be great, but man, do I make mistakes. And I, you know, I got my old temper that comes and visits once in a while, and I got, I say stupid things, and um, but my heart is, I want my children to know the father. I want my children to know our father. Like, I want them to be completely dependent on them and know his great love. And um, my father was flawed as well. As a little kid, I looked at my dad. He's this pillar, right? He's my, he's this otherworldly um, source of life. I mean, he's like, he knows stuff. He knows more than me. He's bigger than me. He can spank me. He's scary. But he's really smart. And he's a good man. My father was a good man, very honest hardworking, uh, died the wool Catholic, lost his faith when I was about eight, along with his marriage. Um, and 
he uh, he told me years later we lost our relationship for about 15 years. Didn't talk to each other, and I prayed for years, and the Lord restored that. But he told me that he had uh, he got married and he had children because he wanted to have soldiers for the cross. It was mind blowing. Like what? You never told me anything. It turned out before I was I was old enough to know he was doing like three hour prayer sessions with my brothers. I never saw that side of him ever. And um, and so this there's a strange like love of him as a just a human being. An appreciation that he wasn't an abusive father. There are a lot. I, we've all heard brutal stories, and, and by and large, he was a good man. But uh, one of the times that I that the father was weaning me off of my father was when I was about um, early 30s, I think. I, I I received the call to be a pastor through uh, prophetic words and dreams and people that I knew, right, very clearly, uh, blew me away. And I take it very seriously. And um, and I asked him on the phone one day, we were talking, and I said, um, hey, if I if God called me to be a pastor, what would that be? What would that mean to you? He said, if you take the pulpit, you will go to hell. That's what he said to me. And so sometimes I hear of uh, my friends who are pastors whose parents are so proud of them, and I'm jealous. I'm like, man, what would that be like? And he literally said, you'll go to hell if you take that pulpit. So then I had a choice, right? I follow my dad, follow my dad or my father. Not a hard choice. It's a bummer. I wanted want him to be proud of me. Um, and my mother was just like, oh, I know you like that. That's nice. Like, are you kidding me? You know how hard this is? Um, and how, you know, profound this is in my heart? Like, it's not a nice thing. This is hard work, right? Um, and so this way that the father weans us off of our parents, and our dad especially, is beautiful and hard. Like, that, again, I want that for my kids, but I also want to be a healthy encouragement to them and reflection of them, right? Um, and I tell you that because those are part of the dark story that God redeems, right? He weaned me off of my dad profoundly in that moment. Like, yeah, you're not, he is not your source. I'm your source. I'm your Abba. Um, so I want to talk about mental illness. My brother, coming home when I was 15, uh, it was a swirl. It was... Here's the instrument of my favorite person speaking in the same tone with the same instrument. He's still my brother. He's still John. I look at him and I see him. And it's incredibly confusing that he is a different person. He's been chemically sabotaged. He's not the same person. Latency in speech. I'd ask him a question and it'd take him three, four minutes to answer. I got to the point where I could finish his thoughts. I could help him. We became so intimate with him. And um, you could look at that as this really dark time, and it was. It affected my schoolwork, my friendships, my relationships with my family, all that stuff. It, it jacked me up really bad. And then when I was about 45, I moved from here to Charlottesville, Virginia. I hadn't talked to anybody about that season. 
and it never occurred to me to. And I started working uh, a job at University of Virginia, and uh, this friend of mine who I worked with, Gail, and I started to talk, and she dropped some hints about her son being uh, schizophrenic, and I said, oh, yeah, I have a brother like that. And we went out to lunch and for three hours just cried and talked. It's the first time I ever talked about it. It was incredible. And I left that job after three years to work at um, the Haven Homeless Shelter, absolutely the, um, my lane, right? It's absolutely where I thrive. I was absolutely loved being at the Haven. And I was dealing with, you know, the, the stats are that 45% of our homeless people have a mental health challenge. And I knew exactly what to do. Why? Because I had six years of training. So God said, yeah, yeah, that was dark, and that was really hard. And you thought that that was a, um, a really bad thing. But look what you can do in this setting. So I would have guys that were fresh out of the prison system, that were swole, that were towering, that wanted to rip my head off, and I'd be physically moving toward them. Like I attributed it to the Holy Spirit, it was beyond... Reason, you know, I, there were times when the spidey senses would say, run away, he's going to, you're the nail, he's the hammer. Um, but most times, I would just find myself moving very directly right into their, into their chest and hugging them. And these guys, who were just guys, would fall apart, crying in my arm. And my volunteers would be like, how do you do that? Why would you do that? And I have no idea. It's because I did it. Every day at home, my brother would ma you know, manifest to become violent, and I, lear I learned how to de-escalate. And uh, a couple years later, a friend of mine who's uh, an AIDS counselor said, that's your first language. You were using the, your friend's first language. So what are you talking about? So when babies are little and they wail, uh, the guardian, mom, dad, whatever, comes and brings them back to homeostasis through physical touch. So you physically approach them. You don't need words. Pick them up, hold them. First language that we learn. How to be brought back to, to uh, okay, right? And so here's the, here are these guys with these great defenses of anger and violence and threats. And I'm using their baby language, right? And they're responding. It's really cool. Um, so what what the enemy, I guess, would I would say meant for bad... God meant for good. He was preparing me for my life's call. Um, I became expert ninja at navigating the Virginia healthcare, mental health care system, starting to learn the Colorado mental health care system. Uh, I met with a lot of families. I could understand what they were going through, how they weren't sleeping. They probably weren't talking to each other as a couple. They were going through all sorts of really dark things because they're just trying to navigate this really ugly, stupid, complex, broken system we call the mental health system. And they're probably not taking care of each other or themselves. And so I was able to minister to those folks and to have books that I would give out and became um, certified in facilitating recovery strategies and de-escalation techniques for first responders. And Like I got an amazing education. And, um, and it's all because of those dark times that God had prepared me and then allowed me to become a leader 
with those skills, right? I was a kid. I had no idea. Not one authority figure in my life said, hey, that's not on you. That's not your responsibility. You, you know, nobody. I just did it for six years. And I went to school. I remember one day my, uh, my gym coach said, Haggerty, why are you acting like such a has-been? Because I was angry and I was acting out. Instead of going, are you okay? It's out of con this is out of character. He, like, dismissed me. You know, another, the vice principal literally brought me into his office and asked me to quit school. Thanks, grown-ups. You're awesome. So all that to say, I, I don't do that anymore. So as I was preparing this message, I really landed on this idea of the generosity of God. And I said that to you guys because I want you to think, you know, because generosity oftentimes feels like the beauty we live in when... You know, you have a good day and a good meal and great time with friends and family and you feel the generosity when things are going okay. And I attribute those dark, dark times in my life as the generosity of God. Take a minute with that, please. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you've gone through, you're not a victim. You are not a victim. You are a child of God. Jesus is the gift that's in us that continues to give. Victim, the victim card is a really weak currency that we get to use sometimes. It's dumb. The whole world's saying you're a victim if you're if you're this or that, right? And it's just it's the enemy trying to get us to live in a place of complaint. When Gratitude is an act of worship. God is generous. I can be grateful for the dark times. I, I, I don't say that like a platitude. My world changed because my brother came home. And that was an education I couldn't have paid for. I worked at a very large mental health organization. And I found out as I was leaving that the uh, clinicians used to call me the mental health whisperer. They literally would call me in in their most manic cases. They would say, "Go get Haggerty," and I go in. And it was I just looked at it like it was just Jesus going in the room before me because the person would settle down before I even got said a word. Like what? That's not me. But trained clinicians who are beautiful people work really hard. Um, had a limit that I was a little beyond just because I lived in it 24/7 for six years, and so that's a generosity, right? It's incredible um, working with people that have uh, don't have a home. It's the only thing, the only difference between me and a homeless person is that one fact. They're just us. I literally, pretty much every day, thank God for my mattress, which is really narrow, it's thin right now. My back is right now. I'm kidding. We're we're in transition, so we got mattresses coming in two weeks. So waking up like. But I literally, for the thermostat that I have, for the lock on the door, for my kitchen, my coffee machine, thank you, Jesus, for coffee. I like coffee. I, I literally, like, I'm so grateful. And my bucket list is this. I want to be grateful for every breath. I'm not there yet. I want to get to the point where I am grateful for every breath. That's my bucket list. Literally, this is an act of worship. 
when when we as free will creatures who can lock on to our uh, darkness and complain and become a victim, we can do that. Or as free will creatures, glorious beings, can say thank you, even in the darkest of times. That's worship. That's mind blowing. I think the spiritual realm goes, what? These people are in in the worst circumstances, and they're saying thank you. That's amazing, right? That's an act of will. That's not a uh, it's not a natural thing. This is a spiritual act of will, right? It's incredible. Just like intercession is spiritual warfare because you're breaking the bonds around you, gratitude is worship. Gratitude is an incredible worship. And I mean, we all go through it. Nobody gets out of here without a hard thing, right? God, Jesus promised, said, hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. Like, what? I've overcome the world? Like, yeah, when do we when do we enjoy that, right? When you're in the thick of it, man. Um, I can remember Steph was bedridden with Hannah. She had a pulmonary embolism. I was in the middle of building my our house, starting a business. And I was we had just left a very toxic uh, church environment, also a very dark time, also redeemed for the kingdom. Um, and my prayers were desperate. I mean, I was like, God, please, get me out. Get me. I need money and I need help. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm patient and kind and long-suffering. There's no hurry. I'm like, you're killing me here. And I found this verse in um, Job where it says, and, and God restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And I became awesome at praying for my friends. And it lifted me out of my swirl, right? Because I'm interceding. I'm, 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 it's warfare. And the same thing with gratitude. Like, I literally, when we moved back here, uh, God gave us this incredible little cabin, nice piece of land and great view. He restored all the stuff that we walked away from when we left. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked out of our cabin and said, I don't know how you pulled this off, Father. How did you pull this? This is ridiculous. How did you give us this place? It's amazing, right? And that's just circumstantial, right? Um, couple more things and I'm going to be done. I have a picture on my uh, my phone of a um, gas meter from our... Does anybody remember Elvis? Our, uh, our, our shag-carpeted 1970s van. Do you remember? Anybody remember Elvis? Chris Austin. <laughs> we bought this 1976 leisure van and when we moved... And it was... Great, but when we got to um, Charlottesville, Virginia, we tanked. We didn't go into debt, but we were on the skids for month after month after month after month, and it was whack. Like, God, we moved here, and if I was in the mindset, as many of my uh, friends uh, have been, and, and or you know, God pulls them out of it where you go, if I do something good, God's going to reward me, right? This transactional mentality. That's not true, by the way. It's very relational. So we went there, and we were on the skids. And there was a family reunion uh, probably about 600 miles away in, in Pennsylvania. All my family's going to be there. They give me an invitation, and we're like, I couldn't afford the gas to drive 35 miles away to pray up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We had no money. And it was like I had to kindly decline. I, don't, I can't make the family reunion. 
And so Steph, when we got through that, took a picture of our gas meter on full. <laughs> and I kept that. It's like, no way. I mean, we've been paying five bucks every time we go out. The, the thing is awful on gas. And w one of the things that happened during that time was, um, so we had moved into this place called Lake Monticello, and, and we were there for, I don't know, five, six months. And it was summertime, and um, Megan was outside with these neighborhood kids playing. And I had cooked up a pot of spaghetti and uh, called the kids in for supper. So there's eight of us. You know, I got a little over a half a pot of spaghetti. And um, Megan comes in. She goes, can my friends have supper with us? I'm like, of course. Do me one favor. Go outside and count. See how many. She goes out, comes back in. She goes, 17. So I'm like, all right, let's go. 25 kids, right? 25 of us. And I'm slinging spaghetti. Everybody ate. Lots of people had seconds. I kid you not. And that thing was over f half full when I finished. Call me crazy. But the Lord was kissing on us saying, I got you. You're okay. I know you can't drive to the Blue Ridge Mountains. I know you can't rub two pennies together. But I got you. And so those are the times, right, where we have testimonies of God's generosity, not the times when everything's, you know, flying to Mexico and, you know, scuba diving. And those are awesome, too, by the way. Um, if you go, invite me, I'll go. Um, but these are the times, those times, those dark times that God really, I think, sets in us a dependence on him and weans us off of our false beliefs like the Samaritan woman and our natural um, support, our fathers and mothers and, and the money and all this stuff that we think is really going to be there, it's, it's temporary. So I want to honor our father today. That's what I want to do. We have a good father. I asked we, uh, Bovi when I got here, I go, you going to play good, good father? All right, huh? He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, you and every other worship leader in the United States is playing Good, Good Father today. He's like, yeah, I'm playing it. But I do love that song, man. It gets me there. It's beautiful. So I'd like you to do this. Stand up. I tell my kids, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be able to be a father. I love you. Um, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to speak out loud what you're how you've experienced God's generosity. And this is something we cultivate towards freedom. This is not a duty. It shouldn't be hard. This is something we should do every day. Instead of complaining, and I'm a master at complaining, I can bring that to the Lord. Um, I, want, I want us to acknowledge the generosity of God, the generosity of the Father. And I want to declare that here today. And if you will, um, aspire like me to be good at this. Get good at this. Hard times will come and go. We have eternity ahead of us. God and the Father is good. So just speak out what, how you've experienced God's generosity. What are you grateful for? Lord, you are good and kind and generous. And by our free will, we return gratitude to you as an act of worship. And we always want to know what's true, that you are kind and generous and long-suffering. And you have promised 
that we can be confident in this, in this very thing, that you, which have begun a good work in us, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about missing something. You have us. You are dedicated to us. And we return uh, all of that to you, Lord, and declare you are good and kind, and we are yours. Thank you, God, for everything. Thank you for this beautiful day, this incredible place, the friendships that are here, our families. Thank you for the hard times where you shape us and you give us testimonies that we could overcome the enemy by the blood of Christ and the testimony. Thank you, Lord. We honor and worship you, Father God, in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's our joy to offer these podcasts. We sure hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, any prayer requests, feel free to drop us a line at Fellowship at iCloud.com. If you're curious about ways you can be more deeply involved in this community, visit our website at EmmausFellowship.org and be sure to like our Facebook page.